Okay, so today I'm on a Zoom call to Australia, Anthony Jupp. Anthony, you're a, a, a hither, hitherto called Juppy, as everybody calls you. Um, I would describe you as what, an industry professional. You've worked all over the world in the betting industry, on course, off course. Um, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, I was just a young man who grew up in the sports mad town of Melbourne. I grew up loving all sports and getting up first thing on a Sunday morning, there was a show called World of Sports. And uh, the first thing they used to show on World of Sports was the replay of the main two races from the, uh, whatever the major meeting was the day before. And that was my first glimpse of racing at about age three or four. I remember Kingston Town winning his third Cox Plate. So that sort of piqued my interest. And then all through school, I always had more than a passing interest in it. And, um, yeah, from there, I sort of started betting when I was reasonably young, probably at the start of high school, and it sort of went from there into a career. Of course, you're not allowed to bet at the start of high school these days. Um, <laughs> you've, you've been all over the world, uh, well, at least over to the UK, uh, working in the industry. So we'll talk about your background of that a bit more in a minute. Um, I was interested that when you were over here, you got tangled up with uh, professional punter Dean Valentine. And that, that was a, a surprise to me. How on earth did that happen? It's, it's actually quite an interesting story. I moved, so I'd sort of gone as far as I could on course over here in Australia. And I wanted to get into the, the corporate side of the, of the bookmaking business. And there was only probably two or three bookmakers, corporate bookmakers here in Australia. And they said, well, you don't really have any corporate experience. And one of my best mates from high school had not long moved to London to go and work as an accountant. So knowing three people in London, I, my wife and I packed up and moved to West Kensington where we settled down. And I hadn't quite got a job yet, but I was buying the Racing Post each morning. And I remember filling out a competition form. And I've entered the competition because it also had the classified for the RP jobs there. So I've sent the entry form in and I've won an all expenses paid trip to the Richmond enclosure on day one of glorious Goodwood. And still singly, one of my greatest days at the races, I've thought this is what I've been missing out on. And being the curious type, I've headed to the ring. I've got a little bit of cash. I'm watching what's happening in the ring. And I'm watching this fellow over here who's trying to bet, not getting too far. And of course, not... I'm not exactly backwards in coming forwards. I've sort of pulled him to one side and said, hello, mate, how you going? I'm just new here. He goes, oh, you, you might come in handy, young man. He goes, do me a favour. He goes, he gave me a couple of grand. He said, uh, just lurk around here and I might send you in to do a little bit of bowling for me and we'll see how you go. So I think by the end of, this, by the, end of the day, he managed to get the uh, blue square uh, pitch there for a good three or four grand. And... Uh, at the races whenever I went after that and uh yes he was he was always good to stop and say hello to but that was my first encounter with not only Dean but a professional punter of any kind on that side of the world and it was just interesting how same attracts same I could sort of see what he was doing he could sort of see that I had some idea and therefore we were able to just get together and I was able to help him out a little bit Oh, just a brilliant day. I really loved that course. I loved the layout. And it was like, I thought, right, this is proper English racing. This is what it's all about. And you were you were based in Brighton at that, at that point, I assume. We'll get back to that no, I was, anyway. No, I was in West London at that stage. I'd only just got there. So 
Um, not long after I got there, I got a job as a grave digger out at a, a cemetery to try and keep the lights on. And then I eventually got a job answering, just started out as a part-time telephone answerer at um, Sporting Index down there in um, near the Oval there. And that was possibly the greatest thing a young man could have ever come into. Right, let's get back to that in a minute. Let's rewind to you in Melbourne watching the replays of the racing and getting into it. That's what attracted you to horse racing. Um, when you were punting, were you winning? I probably, because I was betting so small at that stage, I probably wasn't losing a lot. And again, right place at right time. I'm one of four boys. My youngest brother's 12 years younger than me. I was sort of finishing high school and he was a kindergarten. And my mum was on the local kindergarten committee uh, with a lady there and um, they were talking and she said, well, what does your husband do? And she said, oh, well, my husband's a bookmaker. Oh, yes, my son's very much into racing. And um, the lady said, oh, well, would he like a job? And jumped at the chance and that was, I was 18. It was um, Champions Day over here, which was last Saturday, just gone. In 1998, I worked my first meeting uh, at Dalnaring Picnic Races, which is the sort of Australian equivalent to the point to points. And uh, I worked massively overdressed. I remember that I wore a suit and there was no need to wear a suit because everyone else was there in a shirt and shorts. And I got handed the um, betting bag and I think we held about 25,000 in cash on the first day and I and it just blew me away of, of all the action in the ring and everything that was happening at the time. So, yeah, that's, that, that was my first entrance into the game. So I, I worked for various different bookmakers for about the next eight years on course um, here all around Victoria, but mainly at the picnic races. Okay, tell us a bit more about the picnic races. How, do, how are they sort of organised? Well, these are for the absolute lowest class horses you can find. Um, they're about a tenth of the prize money that we run for at the meetings that are normally covered by the wagering service providers, the WSPs. Um, they're for amateur jockeys. Um, there's no off-course betting on them. So the betting rings are still strong. There'd be a dozen bookmakers still at each of those meetings. And it's one of the few places where it's only a tenner to get in you can bring half a dozen beers and you can bring your food in as well. So you get a lot of people that attracts that for a really casual day out. And it's a real grassroots sort of feel. And it is a real entry point for a lot of people to get into the game. And is it run under the rules of racing? Yes. Yep. So would and you get... If you... Yeah, carry sorry, on. Sorry. No, you carry no, on. If I, last picnic season, I, own, I part-owned a picnic horse. She managed to win, I think it was six races for the season. And I lost money because that's how little prize money is involved. It's it's not much more than running for ribbons there. Okay, so would you would that suggest that the owners have got to land a bit of a touch to make it pay? Is it a bit is it a bit lively? Oh, very much so. Like this one stable would be backing their horse, another stable would be backing that. Oh, this horse must be off today because there's no money for it. The figures were always on your side because the boogie sort of, not that it was a complete conspiracy, but they sort of looked after one another because you, you had so many unknowns. 
So there was always percentage on your side, but also it was a really good learning curve for also just like a customer service sort of thing, like how to deal with people, how to get them in, how to get that money and keep them coming back. And yeah, they're still some of the most valuable pitches that we have here now. And would you get sort of, uh, hunters that specialise at sort of picnic races that would beat you? You very much so. Yeah, like at, there were guys, that, and it's still it's probably a little bit more available now. But back in that time, like this is nearly twenty years ago or more, um, you had to buy the tapes of the races from the guy that was filming there that day. And they were the only video replay that you had. So unless you subscribe to that service, so when you think about it, like you think about that now, now we just click on the internet and up pops the the replay of it. That was a huge advantage to have that or just be able to see the horses had, even if you were just able to watch it yourself. And also there was a big discrepancy in the riders too. The top two or three riders would ride 60% of the winners. Okay. Sounds very much like point of points. Um, so is it still a case that you can't bet these races off course? Yep, still the case. Yep. So is it is so does that mean that because I've been interviewing uh, quite a, a few Australian pro punters sort of over the years, and they all say that the race course itself is absolutely finished or or near near, you know, on its knees. Does this mean that the picnics have still held up with the people turning up to bet? Yeah, it's it's not what it was, but of all the from, compared to the drop off at the other meetings. It's it's still reasonably well protected. You could still go there. We they race during the right time of year, so it runs from the spring carnival right through our summertime to Easter. And during that time, you could earn a reasonable income out of just going to those meetings, compared to say some of the other meetings during the winter time or during the week. Like this, this shows how bad it can be. I've been to meetings during the week where I've written seven betting tickets for the day. Well, that's not viable, is it? I mean, why do why do no. you still go? It must be force of habit because I've got no other reason why they would go. And it's it's getting to the stage now where if you're there, probably one out, you can make it work. But um, I know recently I've been to some of the harness racing meetings and some of the greyhound racing meetings, and I've been the first bookmaker that's worked there for many years because there's just there's no one there anymore. And the gallops, sadly, are heading down that path, especially during the week. We just have too much racing. Okay, so when you're in Victoria, how many race yep. meetings per day in Victoria would there be? Uh, there's one every day of the week. There's two on Friday, two on Saturday, and two on Sunday. So there's about ten or eleven meetings a week. Okay, so but so back when you when you were originally talking about it, it was it was quite good. It sounds like it was all the punters say it oh. was still still thriving. So why did you decide yep. to um to leave it all and move to London? Basically, to try and but make a career out of it and go full time rather than just something that I did on the weekend. Um, I went and got some corporate office office experience and and I started my journey there at Sporting Index. Okay, you mentioned that. Uh, Sport and Index was one of the greatest things for a young man. So tell us about oh. Sport and Index. Well, this was, Betfair was still new. Uh, I was in a, we still, we were originators. So we generated all the prices ourselves. So I was in a room with a whole group of, and it was all men at that stage, that were various experts in various sports, all very opinionated, but all new 
their subject back to front and were all like-minded. I'm still very good mates with a lot of those guys. 15 years on, I still talk to them regularly about like the Cricket World Cup. I've been chatting to a couple of guys about that who I used to work with. There were cricket guys. There were racing guys. There were guys that specialised in darts and Formula One. And just the banter in the office. And it was also before political correctness cracked down with how you could talk to customers. You could actually have a bit of banter on the phone with the customers. Because at that stage, there was still a lot of business done over the phones as opposed to just purely over the internet. And any, any names you can throw at us that were working there at the time? Uh, some of the biggest influences there, uh, uh, Alistair Hunter was there. He did rugby union. He was phenomenal. Um, my dear friend, Jody, he's at, um, Spradex now, the grinder. Um, uh, Tobin, he was there. Like there were some great, there were some great guys that were real specialists in there. Um, Robin Fairweather was the head of racing. He was a, a good judge. David Billington was a freak like that, that there was just some really 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 sharp like-minded guys and the best part about it was if you finish your shift at the same time to them you'd go and have two or three pints on the way home and have a game of darts and that was equally as competitive as anything else you did during the day and whether um a lot of the same names appear when you talk about those days about winning punters were the punters that you ever sort of followed in when they came on you couldn't beat yeah, there was, there was, and often we still kept them as marks. They probably couldn't get as much as they wanted, but they were still kept around. And there were guys that were very specialists. Like, um, we, the brilliant thing about learning spreads as opposed to just a fixed odds market was they were two way markets. So you had to have your prices correct. Like, it wasn't like over here, if you went to Ballarat on a Tuesday and it was a two year old maiden and you didn't know half the horses, well, you put up 140 or 50% and waited for the market to tell you where you should be. Well, when you were trying to come up with the total runs or the distances at a jumps meeting, like you had to come up with those yourself. And um, there were guys that would just sit there and wait to see what you came up with. Cause in a lot of cases, it was almost the industry line for a lot of stuff. And uh, what's so, yeah. Was spread betting a thing in Australia before you came over? Or was it something that was totally new to you? Not really. No, I'd heard of it and I'd seen some of it, but it wasn't prevalent and still isn't prevalent here. Even though we have some sports here that are perfect for it, Aussie rules and cricket are probably the two best spread of any sports you can find. Okay, Joppy, there we, I just want to go carry on with the, with the spread betting because um, uh, previous interviewees of mine, like Neil Channing, was he a name that would have popped up? Yeah, he would have been doing it. Again, he was one of those ones that he would have been able to get something on, but he wouldn't have been able to get all that. Like, yeah, we, we still kept a lot of those guys on because they were a brilliant mark as to which way things were going to move. Like, I can remember one of the red-hot cricket punters that we had um, they were sort of a syndicate and they would ring up after each ball in a test match because they were limited to five five pounds per bet. But they build a position by literally ringing me 300 times during a night shift on the SCG test going, can I please have the total runs and the batsman's runs, please? But that's how they built position. So that, yeah, there were guys like, there were some of the biggest punters 
um, and sharpest punters were betting there. And also we had um, a couple of just absolute whales that were betting there that to them, what they were betting, like meant whether we got bonuses or not, but to them, it was just sort of a drop in the ocean. No, no, Neil Channing was my very first interviewee before we even called this betting people. And he said that when he started working with uh, in spread betting, he was told his only job was to never take a bet from a chap called Tony Bloom. Did he ever cross your uh, <laughs> radar? Uh, yes, he did. There were bits, uh, there were bits and pieces that were done with Tony there, and um, the main pieces of uh, grief that Tony probably Tony Tony and his group gave to Sporting Index was there was. I worked with a lot of bright young men that were either at university or had just finished university and they'd come in and they might start doing a little bit of training and they'd be answering the phone and then they'd start out as junior traders and the next thing, they were gone. And when you inquired what happened to such and such, oh, he's gone to Star Lizard now. He's working over there. He's working in their quants team or he's doing some research for them over there. So um, he knew that the training that sort of we were getting over there was top quality and they were the sort of people that he wanted to engage to help progress his business, which of course is second to none, really. So when, when you were actively working there, um, would you have like an account with City Index and get straight on the phone when a Sharpie came on and had a bet? Would you get involved punting? Yes, but probably not necessarily on the spreads. I'd probably do it fixed odds. And the other thing that I was probably, I had a, an advantage to most of the, some of the other guys that I was working with, I still had all my Australian accounts. And often it was the middle of the night over there. So if something was happening or moving in the UK, I knew there was someone asleep on a desk in Darwin somewhere that I knew that I could pick off. So, so how long did you, how long in total were you there at um, Sporting Index? I was at Sporting Index for about four years. I did two or two and a half or three years on the night shift. Um, that just got draining in the end. I used to do week on week off, but I loved it because a shift would be going, you might see the end of uh, end of whatever the evening football was and then that would swing into settling the greyhounds for the evening and then you'd probably trade a baseball game or two and then I'd sit there for the rest of the night watching the Aussie races. So I did that and then there was the Aussie rules football that I needed to take care of. It was great when the NFL season was on because they were always big betting events and um, yeah, I traded the baseball and the NBA and the college stuff and really learnt a lot doing that and did a lot of live stuff. And we were an odds wholesaler as well. So often if I was trading a game, it wasn't just for Sporting Index. It was for, I think at one stage we had William Hill, Sanabat. We had about five or six different companies that were taking the odds feed. So you needed to make sure they were up to date and everything was working. So yeah, it was a really enjoyable time, but I, it just got tiring in the finish of working night shift. Okay. So then you moved to Brighton um, and worked for Poundbet. I must admit Poundbet are a new one on me. What, what was their story? They were a tiny little firm and it was another great place to work. Brighton's a brilliant town. I loved it down there. There was only about six of us in the office. They had three shops, but the parent company was Marathon Bet, which is a Russian-facing bookmaker who basically, I think, nearly have a monopoly over there. It's, they're a giant firm over there and I think most of people would have had a bet with them. I think they've sponsored a couple of football teams from time to time as well. Um, but yeah, we used to have all the, the normal sort of fixed odds products that you could imagine. And then the, our key role was supplying a lot of the in-place stuff to Russia as well. So it was it was funny. Like you'd, 
you might plot along all day betting on the uh, UK races. You might hold four or five grand for the day. And then um, a Super League match had come up that you'd have to trade and you'd sit there and flick that in play. And then the next minute you'd be holding 400,000 on a Super League game, all of it to Russian clients. Um, I'm not sure what they, they probably knew slightly less than I did about Super League, but it was enough for me to, to chip away and get a prize out of it. Right, so then you eventually moved back to Australia um, and you started working with Sportsback. Yep. Tell so this about... was this was a great time. So I lasted about six months. I, if it was up to me, I'd probably still be in Brighton. My wife had nearly had enough of the cold weather and wanted to come back to Oz. So um, through some contacts, I got a job at Sportsback. And to begin with, I was on the Harness and Greyhound Racing desk. Now, currently, literally every Harness and Greyhound race now has a fixed odds product um, where there's a minimum bet law. They have to bet you to win either 1,000 or 500, depending on the time. Whereas at the stage when I was there, we only used to offer fixed odds on about five meetings a week, but also we used to get rebates from the totes. So all the hot punters were able to have the tote product and then we'd manage the liabilities and tag some of those potter punters in if they were betting. So we were trade. It was, it was almost a trading desk. It was not only were you setting the odds for the fixed odds and managing that liability, any of that hot stuff that came in, we would deal with that and trade that back into the tote pools, um, knowing that we were going to get a positive EV because these were winning clients. And if they weren't, we were still getting a rebate from the tote anyway. So yeah, that was a great time. Another great office full of um, really skilled people. Um, this was when it was still owned by Matt Tripp. And I was there during, it was them, I was there for probably about 12 or 18 months doing harness and greyhounds and the UK racing. So one shift was you'd start at seven o'clock in the evening. You do the harness and greyhounds through the evening and you work through till two or three in the morning till when our TV coverage finished on the UK racing. So there might be two meetings from the UK each day that you'd, you'd trade that fixed odds and, there were still plenty of clients that we had here that were happy to bet on it. And then um, after about 18 months, we went through the transition of when Paddy Powell bought it and things changed dramatically. Okay. You see, so you, you've been in the UK, you're working for various firms. I assume in, assuming you weren't trading harness and grand racing at that time. So you've come back to Australia. I mean, how easy was it to suddenly get good enough a judge at harness and grand racing to be able to do your job properly? Um, it wasn't too bad because it was something that I, that sort of stuff I followed while I was in the UK. Um, as I said, I worked night shift and that stuff was on when I was at work. So I always had a bit of a grasp on what was, what was happening. Um, so it wasn't too much of a, um, too much of a change. And also I had, um, a real good team around me that really helped me along. So we used to look after the Asian racing in Hong Kong and Singapore, UK and Ireland, and the harness and greyhounds. So we we had sort of four or five of us on that team, and we all sort of they all, they really looked after me and helped me. And um, there's, there was a couple of great judges involved there too that I'm still mates with now, and still a couple of the best judges I've ever met. What what was your brief? I mean, excuse me for my, my ignorance, but when you're yeah. like tra when you're trading, was your brief to try and bet overs, get the get the bonus from the tote? Uh, yeah, you know, is it was that you trying to be green every race if you could, or would you be Taking if you had a whale that came on, would you be taking that punter on? But it was an individual for each individual race. Yeah, it was it, a lot of it was also playing the clients as well. 
if it was if it was a client that we knew that we were going to beat, they would just play on. And then if it was a client that was going to beat us, you had to manage them accordingly. You'd bet back what you needed to. And the market was still vibrant enough at that stage where if um, a, a, a smart punter had a bet, we could probably have one and a half times his stake back and still get a reasonable price to the point where it was value for both of us. And we were almost tagging them in and following them in and working with them in a lot of cases. That's one thing that has tra- changed dramatically in my time in the industry. It's just there's there's no ability to do that anymore. And was that purely on your decision? Would you just think, right, I'm the trader, this is what I'm going to do, or would you have to go above and have a little conflab with somebody? Each day there would be a conversation. We'd look at what had happened the day before. These discuss the clients individually, and then we'd basically come up with a set of rules for that client if they needed it. If you were just a run-of-the-mill client, then it didn't matter. It just went into the went into the book and you stood it. That was fine. But if it, it's literally dealing with maybe two or three percent of your total um, punning population, that you'd actually have to sit down and go through and what rules do we need to put around here to make make sure that we're profitable and that if we can keep them as happy as we can. Okay, now what's happened over here, as you probably know, is that if you're a, a good punter, you probably just had your accounts closed down. Yeah. Everybody's jealous of the, um, well, everybody that wins is jealous of the minimum bet rule you've got over there. I'm interested, how did that minimum bet rule come about? Did the Australian bookmakers do what our bookmakers are doing and close down all the shrewdies so they didn't have to worry about the hot money and there was a kickback and it was forced upon them? Well, how, I mean, how did that come about, that rule? Well, I'll tell you a quick story about getting limited. I got a phone call from a customer service representative from Stan James. Uh, or I might've rang them because my account was restricted. And I said, why was my account restricted? And she replied, I'm a harbour. I said, I know I'm a big man, but I'm not as big as a harbour. The trader has told me you're a harbour. I said, do you mean arbour? Yes, that's what he said, arbour, not harbour. So that was... I've been tagged as that. I said, I might be a lot of things, but I'm not a harbour or an arbour. Um, the minimum bet rule has been here in Australia for basically 150 years. On course, so even when we were talking about it in part one there where I was working at the picnic races, you used to have to, you still do, have to bet the odds displayed to win $1,000. And that was the case for all that, and still is the case for all the on-course bookmakers. Uh, now it's, $1,000 on the non-metropolitan meetings and 2000 on the metropolitan meetings. But basically the on-course bookmakers and the winning punters are going to the um, racing authorities, hang on a minute, here's this little sole trader that's going to the races and might hold 10000 for the day, of which half of it's going to be from these shrewd punters who they can't beat, and he has to bet us to win 2000 whereas these giant corporations who are holding a hundred times more than what the on-course guy is, doesn't have to bet anyone anything. And then also, because we have the turnover tax, the PRAs then learnt via the work of um, a dear friend of mine, Richard Irvine, and, and a few of the other punters to say, hey, you're missing out on a heap of tax revenue by not allowing this money to go through the system. So they just brought it in and said, okay, if you want to bet on our product and display our race fields, it used to be 9am day of races 
that was on, but now it's the minute you turn the prices on on your website, you have to bet the minimum bet laws. And that's uh, and I've spoke with punters that have got 30, 35, 40 accounts, so they can um, yeah can definitely get involved. Just but briefly before we get, go on to the uh, you going back to on course, you also traded the U.S. sports. Did, did you have to suddenly become an expert on American football and baseball and all that? Again, because I'd done that overnight at Sporting Index and sort of kept a finger in the pie, I've just been sort of a generalist. Like I, I just enjoy all sports. And the difference with that is there's no, apart from some of the player prop markets, most of the origination is done out of Vegas or the Carib like Pinnacle and these sort of places. So they were always the basis of what you were doing. And if you sort of kept everything in line with that, you knew you weren't going to find too much trouble. So yeah, that was a really enjoyable time. It was also good because all that stuff happens in the morning over here. So there were some early mornings, but also there were plenty of days when by sort of three o'clock in the afternoon you were finished and the, you'd put the next day's stuff up and you'd potter off home. And yeah, it, it was an enjoyable time. And then, yeah, it just got to the stage where I was, I'm an outdoors sort of person and I just got sick of sitting in an office for about the last nearly 10 years. Um, Chuppy, we want to get you went back to the race course in 2013, but you just wanted to say something about uh, yeah, sort of the, the beginning of the sort of end for my time in the office at that stage was when Paddy Power took over Sports Pet and they sort of brought in the Paddy Power mentality where it was chop and limit, and we stopped trading. And also, they cut the rebates off to the tote, so there wasn't a lot of trading happening now. And then what happened was a lot of the guys that I worked with during that time have thought, well, we made money trading for the company. We might as well just do it for ourselves and go punting. So there's probably four or five of them now. Dan Kelly's one and a good mate, Justin Griffiths, that are just, they're professional punters now. But when I was there, we, we must have had, I don't know, probably 30-odd guys that were professional odds compilers. And one thing that the minimum bet law has done is it's, especially for the bigger firms, they've basically outsourced the odds compiling because they can basically have a computer-generated price now that they can put up and then they can react to any bets coming in. So as soon as the prices go up, if I decide to chime in and knock a price off and I've, my account's marked up, well, they're going to adjust the prices accordingly. So normally now within five or 10 minutes, the prices aren't that far away until the really big syndicates get involved later on or the horses are in the yard or there's extra information. So basically they've outsourced that and it's the cheapest price discovery in the world. Like people think, oh, oh no, the firms will do a fortune if, um, if they have the minimum bet laws. I don't think the firms over there in the UK know what they're missing out on, especially the big ones, because if they just kept, they've only, part of the minimum bet rule is you only have to lay it once. So, they check the ledgers of when the bets come through. If I'm first in, I get the bet. After that, they can turn the price off. So they've only got to lay it once. So if you're going to hold 100000 online, but you've only got to lay it to me once to win 1000 it's very, very cheap price discovery. Okay. So just hope the UK bookmakers are looking at that. They might change their minds. Um, so you've gone back to the race course in 2013. You're an outdoors man. Uh, well, what, what, it was, did that happen? It was funny. I was I was a bit jaded. I'd done it for a long time. 
I had a young family. I thought, you know what? I just need a bit of a break. I've just about had enough. And an old bookmaker rang me and said, I've got no staff. Can you come and help me on Saturday? So I thought, all right. And sort of the going rate for a clerk at the time was about $180 to $200 a day. I said, I want $300. And he goes, no dramas. I'll see you there half an hour before the first. And I thought, oh, I thought I was trying to get out of this. It's like the mob. Just when you think you're out, they drag you back in. So off I went to Hillsville, which is one of the picnic tracks. And I think I finished up doing about three years working. Basically, I ran that show for him to the point where there was a funny story. I basically bet with a gentleman named Ian Taylor. And um, one of the other bookies came up to me about three years later. He goes, G'day, Ian. How are you going? I said, mate, my name's not Ian. He goes, yeah, you're Ian Taylor, the bookie. I said, no, 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 mate, I only work for him. He goes, really? He goes, it looks like it's your joint. You run it. I said, no, no, that's not me. So, yes, I did that for a little while. And then um, an interesting job, I got offered a job um, by one of the bookmakers that worked at the Call of the Card last week, um, James Philgate. He ran a business that supplied all the bookmaking equipment to the bookmakers, so the betting boards, the computers, all that sort of stuff. And it was basically a walk-in, walk-out system. The booking, bookmaker literally only had to bring cash and a betting bag. Everything else was set up for them. So I was going to the races four or five times to week, a week to set up all the betting boards and, and whatnot and did that for uh, nearly 12 months. And that was where I met Natalie, uh, Natalie Hinckley, um, who was my was and still is my race, most recent boss on course. And Natalie, somebody I interviewed uh, a couple of years ago now, lady bookmaker, yep. travels all around the all around Victoria, I suppose. And um, so that actually, we want to talk about this. There's a very famous bookmaker in the UK that likes to do food vlogs. Now I've seen, <laughs> I've, I've watched, I've really enjoyed watching yours. Um, I, was that inspired by a famous bookmaker over in England? Is that purely coincidental? I was very privileged to meet that bookmaker last week. Um, what an absolute gentleman. Uh, I'm not so much inspired. It sort of just happened a bit, um, a bit organically. We just, we went out for tea one night just as the firm was starting and they basically recorded me eating my dinner because one of the key differences here in Australia compared to the UK is, is basically all the betting shops now in Australia are inside a pub. So if I didn't have a Saturday where I was, if I wasn't going to the races, I'd say to you, Simon, well, how about we go down, we'll have a couple of pots of beer, we'll have a palmer, and we'll watch the races and have a few bets. And basically the chicken parmigiana, which is a crumbed chicken fillet with um, some sort of tomato sauce and some sort of melted cheese with chips next to it, not underneath it, and vegetables is pretty standard pub fare. And basically you can judge a pub by how well they do this basic dish. <laughs> so but You've been quite critical of the various palmers. I mean, I must admit, I, I spent a bit of time in Australia and I, I, I staggered home from the pub and chomped down on a rose a few times, but palmers were new on me. So I was watching with interest, but it does seem to be a, a, a fair difference in quality and the pies I, as well. You've also... Yes. So a pie is normally a staple on the way to the races. That's one thing. One of my, one of my all time favorite foods is going to eat the jelly deals at Plumpton. You don't get them anymore. Was... <laughs> Gone, has he? Oh. So yeah. between 
that and some of the race course food over here, you wouldn't feed to a brown dog. It is horrific to the point where there's been plenty of courses where I've ordered Uber Eats because that's how bad some of the food is here. So often if there was a good bakery on the way to the races, you'd stop and get something to eat on the way rather than eating there. So that started the pie reviews. And then often you'd stop for a beer and a feed on the way home. And that's where sort of the Palmer reviews and it's sort of tied in with a lot of the traveling that we did too. Yeah. There must, must be a lot of that. Oh, can I ask you a few things about actually yep. a book messaged me uh, a while back at, when he saw Ben over in Australia and he was asking a few of these questions, so I thought, which I didn't know the answer to, so I thought I'd ask you. Are bookmakers on course allowed to hedge into the betting exchanges? I've seen bookmakers here that have developed a hunch like this because they spend their days hunched over looking at the Betfair screen and trading. And basically, that's what a lot of on-course bookmaking is now, is just basically they're traders on the exchange. So if they need to back one, they can lay one. Yeah, Betfair's critical to doing business on course over here. Okay, one thing I did uh, I did hear from the Melbourne Cup, uh, the Melbourne meeting has just gone. Bookmakers are betting to virtually no margin. Is, is it because it's that competitive? Yeah, and it, that used to happen regularly. There was a product that we used to have here, and you can still get it from time to time top sport offer it from time to time it's a product called best of the best which sometimes if you watch australian racing you'll see it flash up and you'll have the three different tote dividends well best of the best is the best of those three and whatever the best fluctuation was during the last 20 minutes of betting well when those prices used to come from the course the top fluctuation was anywhere between about 98 and 103 so I used to be able to beat that with my eyes closed because all you had to do was in an eight-runner race, if you could find three that couldn't win, you could back all five and make money. So the call of the card is a very unique event. And they the call of the card was uh, a week yesterday, a week today, sorry, a week ago today, day before the Melbourne Cup. It's the only time of the year bookmakers, on-course bookmakers are allowed to field off-course and they normally have four bookmakers. Last year, Natalie did it, and she did a wonderful job. And this year, we had four bookmakers there, and you have to bet the odds to win 200,000 to all comers. And it worked out that the, the percentage across the board was somewhere between 99.1 and 100.3. So they bet to no margin whatsoever, and they were betting a quarter of the odds each way. How do they make it pay, though? Basically, they then have to go and then work their books on the rails the next day at Flemington and try and work up. And basically, they've just got to be right. They've just got to try and lay the right ones. If you went and spoke to Rob Waterhouse or Warren Woodcock or James Philgate or Lyndon Cleary, who were there, I know James lost on the cup only because it was his call and he was the one that laid the winner. Right, okay. um, whereas the other, the other guys probably would have won on the race because they've, they've laid stuff that hasn't run a place. But I know the 100 to one shot Shiraz running a place was a shocking result for a lot of bookies there on um, on Tuesday. Okay, just back to the practicalities of being an on-course bookie there. How much would it cost you to stand as a firm for each? So basically it costs you nothing. You've just got to work your way into these meetings. So sometimes you can buy your way in by buying another person's business. But other than that, once you... Uh, post your guarantee because all the bookmakers are guaranteed here. So you might have to put 20,000 into the guarantee. Then you're granted your license and then you apply to the courses to work. If they, if there's enough space, they'll put you straight in. 
if if there's not, you might have to go to some of the far-flung meetings and the lesser meetings where you're not going to hold any money and you work your way up. Or there might be a retiring bookmaker that's selling his business and wants to get out and you can buy that and then you'll you'll inherit his stands. Okay, now compared to when you first started, I mean, it's you've already sort of explained this pretty bad, but how bad is the decline in on-course business? It's, well, it, it's the same with everything. The whole world's changed. Um, another, to give you a, a similar sort of insight, I do a little bit of fundraising here for the local hotel where I drink and I sell the raffle tickets for the meat raffle on a, uh, uh, a Friday night. It's the same there. No one's got any cash. Everyone pays by card now. And the banks over here in Australia are probably no different to the UK. Don't really want to have anything to do with um, gambling. So it's very hard for a bookmaker to get a tap and go terminal as well as the responsible gambling stuff. It just makes it really, really hard. So there's just a lot less cash around. And we've got a generation now who have been taught to bet by the corporate bookmakers. They weren't taught by their fathers or grandfathers or someone who showed them how to do it. They weren't there when I was there, when you were in the ring and that was the centre of activity. That's where all the vibrancy was and you watched what he did because when he bet, the price went off. Now it's, oh, take a same game multi or accumulator or what take accumulators, all that sort of stuff. Take lucky 15s. It's all that sort of stuff's been pushed on them. And through the advertising, that's what sort of educated the punters and the, the poor old on course guys have just been left behind. Like, as I said, you can go to some of these midweek meetings and if you hold two or $300, you're doing really, really well. And all it is then is liability. Like if you get one owner who wants to back his horse to win a thousand and it wins, well, there's your day gone. Like you just, you're not going to get out of it. Okay. Now, look, at, I mean, it seems that the UK is a fair way back from that bad situation because yeah. the on-course market is still vibrant in a lot of meetings, even midweek. But you can see the way things are going, especially with what you've just described. Are there any yeah. lessons that the UK could learn from Australia, what's happened there, to stop us following you over the over the precipice on course? I'd be very careful with the amount of meetings you have. You guys, you guys have got an advantage because you've got a much bigger population than we do. But we, we have too much racing. And it's oversaturated to the point where there's so much of it that if you miss today, it's on again tomorrow. The, the meetings that are still good over here are the ones that are actually special. So I'm going I'm to go to a country race meeting. It's one of the most picturesque courses. If anyone gets the chance to watch it, it's a track called Dunkeld. It's a very tight little track. It's got a beautiful mountain range in the in the background. The town consists of a pub and a general store, and there'll be about 12,000 people there. And most of the bookies will hold minimum 20,000 there. Because it's, but you could then go the day after to just the run of the mill meeting and you wouldn't hold a thousand. So the special meetings, and like what you've reported too, Simon, you've done an absolutely wonderful job with reporting some of those real big meetings like the Cheltenham's and the Royal meetings and the glorious Goodwoods. And they're still always going to be good because they're an event meeting. People set themselves for them. And that's what we sort of learned. The real good meetings, the event meetings, people will still go to the run of the mill stuff. That's just product for a lack of a better term. That's just there for the, the punters during the day and the, the night. Like that's the other thing we've got night racing here three nights a week now. Um, yeah, it's, there's just so much of it. If you miss it, you know that it'll be on later on. So I think that's something to be wary of. Maybe less is more. 
Okay, just finally, uh, we don't want to be we don't want to end on a negative. It's back to the call of the card. I'd love to go. That looked fascinating. I saw you there with your your fancy headgear, whatever it might be behind you. Um, the game's not <laughs> totally gone, has it? There was. What was the biggest no. bet? What was the biggest bet laid there? Oh, it was to win over a million. Um, I think the guys from the Wolf Den. I know last year. Well, oh, this is an insight, Natalie. I work. I ran the computer for Natalie last year. And it's the hardest, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do on the computer because they're shouting bets at you, 19 to the dozen. Like you're trying to punch them out as quick as you can. We had, before we did anything else, before we went to the races the next day, we had three horses taking a million dollars out of the book. So that gives you an idea. Like I'm only, a, I was lucky. I was sitting next to a couple of other professional punters who were real good mates of mine. And we decided we'll get a little syndicate together and we're going to back two or three horses. So we backed... Um, right you are who was originally from the UK we had 60,000 or 1,000 each way in we backed Bow and Declare who was a previous winner of the Melbourne Cup we had 30,000 or 1,000 each way and then we backed the eventual winner luckily without a fight and this just shows how well we went we had 2,000 each way at well what's six and a half that's 13 to two um, yeah 13,000 to 2,000 each way and it started started nine to one. So we've we've won we've won, but we're still kicking ourselves saying, well, we didn't beat the SP. So the, the typical pun is if, if I can my main goal for the next period, Simon, is if I can channel the whinging of bookmakers and punters into renewable energy, I'll solve the energy crisis. <laughs> and on that, that, that note, Anthony Jup Juppy, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Simon, absolute pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for doing these. As someone who consumes a hell of a lot of content, there's been many long road trips where this has been whacked on the screen and we've watched the betting people as we've driven around. So thank you for the job that you do. It, it reaches all around the world. Don't worry. Oh, brilliant. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much.